Welcome to episode 14 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. Our guests are Steve Evenhouse, Bill Pennington, and Jonathan Klein. And remember that order is arbitrary, but it'll be followed for the rest of the episode. So uh, starting now in that order, could you each just introduce yourself, say where you're Skyping from, and maybe give one brief sentence about yourself, starting with Steve. Hello, I'm Stephen Evenhouse. I'm coming in from Frankfurt, Illinois, about half an hour south of Chicago. I am a U.S. history teacher also in Frankfurt, and this is my first experience being on a podcast. Cool. All right, Bill? Hi, I'm Bill Pennington. I'm in Sydney, Australia. This is my first time on a podcast, too. I'm usually an aid worker working in international development. All right. There's going to be quite a bit about international development today. <laughs> oh, that's good. And uh, John or Jonathan or John, I'm not sure which one you go by. Hi, I'm Jonathan Klein. I'm coming from New York City, sheltering in place, trying to ride out the coronavirus like everyone else is. I am an oncologist here. So while I am a healthcare worker, my department is not directly uh, affected too much by the, uh, the COVID outbreak. So we're doing our best to help out and to keep everything running until things settle down. All right, cool. I was saying before the recording started, I'm a little rusty. This is the first episode I'm recording in quite a while. And although it's not may not be obvious to listeners, it's very obvious to me listening back to the last three episodes I recorded that I was pretty hopped up on cold and flu medicine while recording them. I do not officially know what I was sick with, although I have my suspicions, but um, I more or less recovered now. So this is my first post-recovery episode. So this game is going to be in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle questions I've written before. These questions mostly will serve as a warm-up, not not in the sense of being easy. They're usually fairly difficult, but in the sense of just kind of getting your minds all working, getting you used to my question writing style. They will be worth a tenth of a point, which may come in handy as a tiebreaker at the end. It hasn't so far, but it almost has a few times. For this round only, you will each answer as individual visual. So if the first person the question is directed at misses it, they'll go to the second and then the third if both of them miss. And so the further back you are, the less of a direct shot you'll have at the question, but the more time you'll have to think and the more potential answers might get taken off the table. And we'll rotate so each of you gets to answer in this round three questions in first position, three in second, three in third. The rules will change after this round and I'll explain that when that happens. And again, just a reminder to sort of you know talk through your thinking process a bit because that is the main content of this podcast is kind of the way in which you're breaking down and thinking through the questions. So don't just keep it to yourself. I mean, you don't have to like uh, ramble on and on just for the sake of talking, but you know, share whatever interesting thoughts or connections you have. Okay. And as I said, the order will be Steve, Bill, Jonathan. So we'll start with Steve in first position for the first question. You ready? I'm ready. Taking a few liberties, screenwriter Anthony McCartan depicted Pope Benedict XVI in The Two Popes, the 2019 movie, as a fan of a certain real-life police procedural series that ran for 10 seasons in Austria and then another eight in Italy. What is unusual about the detective who is the title character of that series? <laughs> uh, well, right off the bat, I have not seen The Two Popes yet, so this is going to be a stretch, and I suppose it's going to have to be a guess. <sighs> So my knowledge of European police procedurals is also pretty weak right now. So I'm going to throw out a guess and say the unusual thing is that they are a psychic. 
a good guess. There will never in this game be a penalty for guessing, which means that you're always incentivized to guess, even if, you know, there's only a very small probability of being right. But yeah, that is, in this case, not correct. So uh, I'll go to Bill. Yeah, this was one of my parents' favourite shows in the 80s. It was shown on Australian television, the Austrian version. I think it's probably, I haven't seen the two popes, but I'm guessing it's going to be Inspector Rex. So the detective was a German shepherd dog. Yeah, so in a sense, being a... a <laughs> sort of a watchdog for the Catholics in the world, Pope Benedict might be thought of as a German shepherd himself. (laughs) So even though there's no evidence that he actually enjoyed that series, in a way it kind of makes a metaphorical sense. So yeah, the show's original in German was called Kommissar Rex, usually translated as Inspector Rex, and the title character was a dog or German shepherd. (laughs) Not being American may disadvantage you on some questions, but it seems to have advantaged you on this one. So we'll continue to another non-US-centric question with Bill in first position. So in a previous episode, we had a question relating to the screenwriter John Logan. He has no relation to the Irish singer-songwriter Johnny Logan, who notably is the only musical acts to ever do what okay this is a real weak area for me <laughs> johnny logan what did he do um he won eurovision twice that's okay, my guess is that the answer you're locking in that's what i'm locking in i have no idea he actually was born in australia although he left at the age of three when his family moved to ireland and yeah his notable distinction is that he is the only musical act to have won the eurovision song contest twice oh and... that was just a complete wild guess <laughs> wow well wow. done <laughs> very impressive yeah, he also wrote a song that won the contest for another artist. So some sources say that he won it three times for that reason. Wow. Okay. Well uh, done. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt it was that wild, I guess. But uh, all right. So here's a, a bit of a harder one, starting with Jonathan. In uh, Harder than that? <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, wow. Least, depending on what pockets of knowledge people bring in, sometimes the uh, difficulty can be different from what I expect it to be. But uh, only one way to find out, which is to proceed. So for Jonathan now. When the poor people of Paris rise up in rebellion in Les Miserables at the climax, who are they rebelling against? You can give either the name of the government or its leader. Okay, so I will admit to not ever having actually seen or read Les Miserables, though I have been listening to various historical podcasts which make some reference to this. Oh, there are so many different governments in the French history that I have to make sure that I'm remembering the right one. Okay. I believe it is the July monarchy. All right. So the very common misconception that Les Miserables is set during the French Revolution. And in fact, in that period, there were multiple French revolutions. It's definitely not set during the one that overthrew the monarchy around 1789. It's also not set during the July Revolution, the one that overthrew the Bourbons and established the July monarchy or the revolution of 1848. Probably one of the other big three revolutions, the one that ended the July monarchy and established the Second Republic. It is, in fact, set during the June Rebellion of 1832, which was unsuccessful. But that was against the July monarchy. So do you remember who their leader, uh, the leader of that government was? Was that Louis Napoleon? It was not. Louis Napoleon was another name for Napoleon III, who led both the Second Republic and then dissolved it and made it the Second Empire. But the July monarchy had at its head the citizen king, Louis Philippe. Ah, uh, Louis Philippe, right. Well, at least I picked the right name to use for it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, if you were a French person born in 1790 and lived for about 80 years, you would have gone through the monarchy, the First Republic, the First Empire, the Hundred Days, the Bourbon Restoration, the July Monarchy, the Second Republic, the Second Empire, and the Third Republic all would have happened during your lifetime. 
there wow. was a ton of turmoil going on and there. And the Paris Commune and the right. uh, Franco-Prussian yeah. War too, yeah. Yeah, all that Make you live in interesting times. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so now going back to Steve for this question and for his position. According to Wikipedia, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine included a certain cookbook, quote, on their list of the five worst cookbooks of 2010, <laughs> noting its recipes are, quote, loaded with fat and cholesterol, specifically citing one called Gart's Breakfast Bowl, which, quote, includes eight large eggs, a pound each of bacon and sausage, cheese tortellini, cheddar cheese, tater tots, and B.O.B., which stands for Bowl of Butter. Which country singer turned successful TV chef authored that cookbook? Uh, can I ask for a, a repeat of the last sentence? It kind of broke up here. Okay. Which country singer turned successful TV chef authored that cookbook? Well, we once again hit on a weak area. Country music is not my forte, but I did hear Garth's Breakfast Bowl in there. So that makes me want to guess that this was Garth Brooks. Uh, yeah, generally the, the clues here won't quite be that straightforward. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> but uh, but good job um, sort of uh, breaking down the question. All right, Bill? Oh, look, uh, American country music. Uh, I think if Steve doesn't know, I've got no chance. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to just think of it must be a male singer judging by that type of breakfast, I think. So I'm going to say Willie Nelson. <laughs> I can imagine reasons why Willie Nelson might be hungry. <laughs> but uh, good guess, not correct in this case. Jonathan? So I am also not a country music aficionado, nor am I a cooking show aficionado. So I'm pretty much out on this one, too. I'm going to say Toby Keith. So when I first wrote this question, again, not being that familiar with country musicians myself, I didn't realize that, yeah, the Garth's Breakfast Bowl was, in fact, a big hint, not specifically to Garth Brooks, but to the person ah, who, shoot. Yeah, who, yeah, who cooks um, breakfast for him some of the time, apparently. His wife, who since, I think, 2012 has had a show called Trisha Southern Kitchen or something like that that's been successful. Um, Trisha Yearwood? Yeah, her name is Trisha Yearwood. Should have taken one more step there. <laughs> All right, I'll start with Bill on this next one. What comes fifth in this sequence? One word, 1996. 90 words, 1999. Two words, 2005. 23 words, 2012. What comes fifth? Ooh, okay, I just had a quick, jotted that down quickly. Um, one word in 96, 90 words in 99, two words in 2005, and 23 words in 2012. Um, See if I can send it in the chat so it'll... No, um, it's, I've written it down. Oh, the others can have a look here too. Uh, oh, there it is, we... yeah. 90 words. Um, the years don't mean anything to me, apart from 2005 and 2012 were the years that the Sydney Swans won the AFL flag. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm going to have to pass on this one. Sorry. All right. goes next to Jonathan. Okay, so presumably this is another number of words... One ninety two twenty three six ninety nine two thousand five two thousand twelve. What happened in those years? What is something that normally? So, how long do I have to think about this? 
I mean, um, we've kind of zipped through the previous questions a little fast, so, you know, you have a... There's, mm. no, there's no official time limit. You've earned a little bit of extra time because the previous questions went by pretty quickly, but obviously, you know, not too long. Okay, I have a guess, which I am almost certain is not right, but maybe <laughs> it is. But I'm going to think a little bit more about this. Tell me when I'm running out of time, and I will guess whatever I have at that time. 2020. All right, I'm just going to guess. Four um, words, 2020. Do you want to explain the logic behind that? This is either going to be amazingly fortuitous, or people are going to think I'm crazy. So, 90 words, 1999. So, the artist Fiona Apple released an album around that time, which had a notably very, very long title, which I don't want you to ask me what it is, because I do not know even a single one of the 90 words. And if I'm not mistaken, her debut album, I think, was just called Criminal, which came out around 1996. And then maybe she had a long, a, another longish titled album in 2012. And I think she just came out with one. And to be honest, I don't remember what it's called, but I think it has a four-word title. So her debut album was actually called Title. Um, oh, yeah, but, that was it. Yeah, it did in 1996, did have one word title. Her second, released in 1999. The full title is, in fact, When the pawn hits the conflicts, he thinks like a king. What he knows throws the blows. When he goes to the fight, and he'll win the whole thing. For he enters the ring, there's no body to batter when your mind is your might. So when you go solo, you hold your own hand and remember that depth is the greatest of heights. And if you know where you stand, then you know where to land. And if you fall, it won't matter because you know that you're right. Sure. Uh, yes. <laughs> That is, in fact, 90 words long. It was followed by Extraordinary Machine, which is two words. And then her fourth studio album was called The Idler Wheel is Wiser Than the Driver of the Screw and Whipping Cords Will Serve You More Than Ropes Will Ever Do. Relatively brief, 23 words. And then her most recent album was called Fetch the Bolt Cutters. It is, in fact, four words long. So Jonathan is correct. Well done. That was wow. really good, Jonathan. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Can I say that I was waiting in the wings to give that answer? And will anybody believe <laughs> Leave me. <laughs> All right. The next one will start with Jonathan. I can also send this one in the chat because it's kind of long. When he was growing up in Morocco, young Nadir Kayat dreamed of writing and producing Western-style pop music. As an adult, he decamped to Sweden and established himself under the moniker Red One before breaking into the American music scene and becoming a huge success. Today, he's best known for multiple creative collaborations with which artist? As a producer, he earned three consecutive Album of the Year Grammy nominations for this artist album between 2010 and 2012. Also, she shouts out his name at the beginning of her 2008 smash hit debut single. Okay, so so I think I actually have come across this person before. Unfortunately, I am not certain that is going to help me all that much. Multiple creative collaborations with what artist? Three consecutive Album of the Year Grammy nominations. Okay, in 2010 and 2012. I still kind of listened to new music around that time. So that should that should be someone that I've heard of, at least. She shouts out his name at the beginning of her 28, 2008 smash hit debut single. So it's really a question about the artist, not Nadir Kayat, a.k.a. Red One. Hmm. Could it be? Her. Three consecutive album of the year. Why not her? Debuted in 2008. Anything? 
Don't really have anything, so I'm just going to guess Nicki Minaj. All right. Decent guess, but not correct here. Steve? Well, I'm cycling through just about every pop star I can think of, and 2008 was me teaching junior high, so I'm trying to come up with if anybody was really, really popular, and I feel like most of my guesses debuted a little bit before then. So... Mm, sorry need one more moment to see if i can come up with anything here and i'm not getting anywhere so i'm gonna throw out demi lovato another decent guess but not correct here bill okay <laughs> um i'm benefiting from the fact that you've mentioned two people which i've never heard any music from so <laughs> um, again based on the year look i think it's probably too early cardi b yeah, I think Cardi B came out a little later than that, but um, yeah. yeah, that 2008 song was pretty ubiquitous, but I never really listened to the words that much, and I guess I always assumed she was shouting red wine for some reason at the beginning, until very recently I learned who red one was, and it kind of clicked, and I was like, oh, that's what she's saying. But um, yeah, right after that, she says her own name, Gaga, the song is called Oh, oh, oh man. of course. Oh, come on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it feels, uh, feels like a fumble. <laughs> Yeah, the song was called Just Dance. I think the albums were uh, the fame, the fame. Oh, yeah. I definitely thought she said red wine as well. Yeah, her name is Lady Gaga. All right. And now the last cycle. So one more of each of these questions with each of you in first position. So we'll start with Steve in first position now. Okay. The Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, a pet project of the world's second richest woman, is located in which city? Crystal Bridges, second richest woman in the world. Uh, well, it's not a museum I visited, so I might have to take this through trying to figure out who the second richest woman in the world is, uh, which does not exactly get me anywhere either. So I'm wondering if the second richest woman in the world recently became the second richest woman in the world. So I am going to guess... Seattle. All right. Decent guess. Uh, not correct. Bill? Could you just repeat the question again? Yeah. The Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, a pet project of the world's second richest woman, is located in which city? Okay. Again, I'm, I'm going to have to think of who the second richest woman is. It could be one of the Walmart heirs, which I don't even know where Walmart is based in America. So um, <laughs> I've got, I'm just going to take a stab at somewhere where I've never heard of a, a museum of modern art. Where would, you, where would you build a new museum of modern art, American art? Somewhere in the Midwest, I'm going to say St. Louis, Missouri. All right. And another decent guess. Jonathan? So I am also going to guess a Midwestern city. I have been there. I have never heard of this museum, but I'm going to guess Chicago. All right. So uh, in this case, of the three of you, the one whose logic was on the right track was definitely Bill. The world's richest woman, I believe Francoise Betancourt Myers, the heiress to the L'Oreal fortune, who is definitely worth it. By it, I mean over $40 billion. <laughs> the, the second most richest woman is, as Bill said, from the Walton family mm. of mm. Mart. And they are headquartered in Bentonville, Arkansas. Oh, so I should have I should have gone with that logic because I knew where Walmart was headquartered. I just didn't think that that was the second richest woman in the world. I thought it was Oprah. <laughs> uh -huh. All right. And so now starting with Bill in first position on this one. Someday We'll Know, sung by Mandy Moore on the soundtrack of A Walk to Remember, 
and later covered by Hall and Oates featuring Todd Rundgren and by America, originated as the second and final single released by what 1990s band generally regarded as a one-hit wonder? Mm. What was the name of the song again? I send it, yeah. Yeah, it's Sunday called Someday Will Know. Someday we'll know yes. But later by the others. Um, okay, that's Someday We'll Know. Um, I've never heard of the song. I've never seen the movie. I'm wondering what, if 2002 was the first appearance of it. It's, it's the name so of the band in the 90s. Band in the 90s, one hit wonder. Um, band in the 90s, one hit wonder. I don't know, the Hooters. All right. Uh, Jonathan, no, no idea. So I also have not seen this movie. I also am not familiar with this song. So I am also relegated to randomly coming up with a 90s band that is generally considered to be a one-hit wonder. Second and final single by what 90s band generally regarded as a one-hit wonder? Well, I am stuck. So I am going to guess Semisonic. Ooh. I believe, yeah, the main guy from Semisonic did, in fact, go on to write several other songs that were successful, including a few uh, Record of the Year Grammy winners, but uh, not the correct answer in this case. Oh, oh man. Oh, oh you, got me, you got me so excited. Quite the build-up. Steve. Well, I'm going to try to play off the idea of a soundtrack and a one-hit wonder here, and I uh, definitely remember hearing the song Love Fool, over and over and over again while I was in high school and then never hearing from that band again. So I'm going to guess the Cardigans. You guess the Cardigans? Yes. Um, gosh, I, I believe it was a Swedish band. This was an American band that had their only hit at the tail can end I, of the can I, can I Can I have another guess? Sure. <laughs> Six pence and on the richer. It's, uh, yeah, another uh, back lots of, lots of memories from uh, but uh, you know all these names. But um, yeah, this band they released yeah only one album at the tail end of the '90s. But sort of the two main songwriters from it went on to a great deal of success as writers. Danielle Brisbois wrote Natasha Bedingfield's two big hits, Pocket Full mm-hmm. of Sunshine, Unwritten, and Greg Alexander also uh, wrote a ton of popular songs. But the group they formed broke up pretty much right after its first album, which was called Maybe You've Been Brainwashed Too and they only released two singles from that the second was someday we'll know the first was called you get what you give and it was by new radicals oh yes wow and now the last question of this warm-up round we'll start with jonathan in first position all right. According to a 2011 BBC News article, a structural engineer named Bernard Neal, quote, has won more Wimbledon singles titles than Martina Navratilova, Pete Sampras, Bjorn Borg, and John McEnroe combined. How is that the case? <laughs> okay, so I have two guesses, and I have to decide which one <laughs> to guess. He's a structural engineer, and he's won a lot of Wimbledon titles. Those people have won a lot of Wimbledon titles, although not every Wimbledon title. Pete Sampras won, I think, seven. Bjorn Borg won a bunch. Obviously, Martina Fadalova won a bunch. I am going to say that he designed the championship trophies. <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting uh, outside the box. Yeah, you kind of have to think outside the box on this one, so uh, a good, good effort on that, but not correct here. Steve? All right. Um, so I'm guessing that there's more than just tennis played at Wimbledon, and that's sort of the source of our mm. here. And I'm thinking back, and I'm pretty sure that perhaps Bernard Neal won those singles titles for Croquet. Mm. Yeah, so if you look at the full name of the club, right, it's like the All England yeah. Volunteers and 
croquet or whatever. So they do, although their tennis championship is a famous one, they do in fact hold a club croquet championship and that he won 30-something titles over the course of his life. All right. And he still had to be a structural engineer. I wonder, uh, perhaps croquet is, a... is not a massive sport, is it? Really? <laughs> <laughs> so I have an affinity for the lesser played sports. I'm uh, a badminton coach here in Illinois. So I've written several rounds about the lesser known sports for pub quizzes and the like. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not, not a big ticket sport the way tennis is, but who knows? That may change in the future. But, uh... mm-hmm. All right, so um, we finished this round with everyone on the board. I, I always worry these questions will be so hard that people will uh, miss all of them, which has only happened in one episode so far of the 14. But here, everyone, in fact, got on the board, which often does not happen. So we finished this round with Steve at 0.1, Bill at 0.2, and Jonathan at 0.2. I was going to be crestfallen if I didn't get on the board there. So <laughs> I'm glad I snuck one in. All that work for two-tenths of a point. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's, it's a uh, logarithmic scale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we'll move into the main part of the game, the three specialist rounds. This game is a little unusual in that two of you supplied me with extremely broad specialist categories, and then one of you supplied me with extremely narrow categories. Oh. And uh, that creates Oncol- perhaps oncology a... from Jonathan, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so that might create a bit of an imbalance, but you know, I had to work. With... <laughs> with what I was given, so um, I've, I've tried to stick within those parameters. Okay, so in this round, each of you, and in each successive round, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories, not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your knowledge of them. They may relate directly or obliquely. Uh, one of you, they kind of have to all relate obliquely. And to keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories up front, not until they become evident. So here's the twist is that before you can answer your specialist questions, your opponents get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer a point if your opponents miss. Although in a few cases, there are what I call bonus questions, which are worth half as much as to steal. And sometimes you might get a chance to answer those if your opponents steal the points from you. But those are kind of unevenly distributed. So don't worry too much about them. They haven't changed the outcome of any game so far. So it's mainly just there to kind of help you preserve your ego and give listeners a few more questions to hear. So you only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. Aside from the bonus says, sometimes, especially in later rounds, I might pass the question to you without telling you if your opponent got it wrong. That's usually just done to build suspense. But in those cases, even if you think they got it right, just answer as though they got it wrong, because otherwise you couldn't get any points. All right. So this first round is the not all that hard round. These questions are not all that easy, but probably the easiest ones of the game. So they will be worth two points as a steal and one point as a specialist. And now and for the rest of the game, the points will go to both stealers if there's a successful steal, even if only one knows the answer. And again, we'll start. So the first specialist question will be Steve. So we will start with Bill and Jonathan trying to steal from Steve. All right. So here's your question. The only man ever convicted for playing a role in the Mountain Meadows Massacre of 1857, John D. Lee, was executed in 1877. The wheels of justice went very slowly in that case, but left a rather large genetic legacy. In fact, four of his great-great-grandchildren have served as U.S. senators, and they have represented four different states. So one of those descendants is Mike Lee, currently the senior senator from Utah, Name any one of the three non-Utah states represented in the Senate by John D. Lee's descendants. Jonathan, this is yours. I, I is... could pro- probably name two U.S. senators in history, so... 
four of his great great grandchildren okay so they are um okay so they're similar so that that implies that they are all of similar generation to mike lee who is to give an answer we also have approximately a six percent chance just by guessing randomly uh because we have three guesses and there are 49 additional states to guess from so that's promising uh i'm trying to think if i have heard now they don't necessarily all have to have the last name Lee, which it probably is the case, at least for some of them. And it doesn't make it easier to guess the correct answer. Uh... Jonathan, do you know anything about the Mountain Meadows Massacre? I have no, I have never heard of this before. I've never heard of John D. Lee. I have not heard of anything okay. like this. Huh. Now... Um, do, you think, do you think there's a Mormon connection? So I was I was thinking that. So maybe I don't actually know if Mike Lee is Mormon or not. I would imagine it's likely, given that he represents Utah, although not 100% certain. So I was kind of gonna suggest just guessing something from that perspective, not really having any knowledge that it's definitely correct. But I mean, there are a lot of Mormons as well in Colorado, which is also a sort of a Western state, which would not have required his family to have traveled very far. That would be something that I would guess. I have no reason to believe that this is correct or even a good guess, but that's what I would have suggested guessing. Do you want to go with that or do you want to continue to discuss? I'm happy with your guess, actually, more than anything else. Okay, well, I will let you give the guess officially. So we're going with, are we going with Colorado? Sure, fine with me. All right, we'll go with Colorado. All right, locked in Colorado. So I will tell you that that is a correct answer. Oh, before, okay. before revealing who the descendants are, I will give Steve his bonus question. So two of the aforementioned senators, both of whom were first elected to the U.S. Senate in 2008, are the son and nephew of what long-serving Arizona congressman who made a serious run at the Democratic presidential nomination in 1976? Oh, so when it comes to Arizona congressmen, if they're not uh, the current Arizona congressmen, I'm pretty sure I only have one guess to make there. So I'm going to go with Barry Goldwater. But I also yeah, very, think I'm correct about his party. Yeah, Barry Goldwater was definitely very Republican and uh, yes. <laughs> came to prominence a decade earlier in the 60s. Yeah, so of the besides Mike Lee, the other three direct descendants of John D. Lee, who, who was a, a member of the LDS Church, there's been a lot of controversy about to what degree Brigham Young and other high-level Mormon leaders were involved in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And mm. generally, they basically just kind of picked John D. Lee to serve as a scapegoat to kind of shut down any mm. further inquiry. Although he was, well, when I say scapegoat, I don't mean to imply he wasn't involved. He definitely played a huge role in the massacre. It's more that they just decided to let one person take all the responsibility. But anyway, his descendants were uh, Mike Lee, Gordon Smith, who was a senator from across the river in Oregon, and then senators from Colorado, New Mexico, who were first cousins of each other, Mark Udall and Tom Udall, and they were the son and nephew of 1970s candidate Mo or Morris Udall. Hmm. Former pro basketball player, Mo Udall. So that's two points for Bill and Jonathan on that. And the next question, go to Steve and Jonathan trying to steal from Bill. So the elephant foot yam, which we'll be hearing a lot about today, or white spot giant arum, belongs to the same genus as the so-called corpse flower or titan arum. That genus takes its Latin name from the fact that its flowers tend to bloom as inflorescences that resemble what human body part? Hmm. Arum. Sorry, whose turn is it? This is Steve and Jonathan stealing from Bill. Okay. Okay. 
Uh, I'm hoping that in medical school you have some memory. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I yeah, do. Sometimes I do. This does not ring an immediate bell. Although I'm hoping that if I stall for long enough, something will come into my head. Flowers tend to bloom that resemble what human body parts. So what are some body parts that it could resemble? Well, could resemble a head, could resemble an arm, could resemble a finger. My wondering, what jumps to mind for me is an ear. Mm. But it's been quite a while since I've seen a corpse flower. Even so, that really sticks out for me. Can yeah. you think? Well, I mean, the adjective is oral, A-U-R-A-L, which sort yeah. of looks like that word. So I don't think I have a better guess than that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's eye. I don't think it's nose. I don't think it's like tooth or face or something like that. So, yeah, um, I'm trying to think of any other words you know, in common English usage that might give us a clue. But my Latin is about 20 years old and was never that good to begin with. Yeah, so. I, I like that. I would go with that. All right, then uh, I would agree and say we'll go with an ear. All right, you're locking in ear. Bill? Um, that sounds great. This is a question I, I know nothing about. I've seen elephant foot yams flowering. Um, that's my only connection to this one. And the flowers are weird. They're really weird. They're, um, they look very odd indeed. They look like something out of um, a science fiction movie. Um, ears pretty good based on the Latin derivation of the name, but just based on the appearance of what I've seen the flower look like, I'd say a hand. Is that what you want to lock in? Well, we've got nothing nothing beyond the ear apart from hand. All right, yeah. I thought it would be fairly deducible for anyone who's seen... I mean, most people in the U.S. won't have seen a elephant foot yam, but I mean, you might have seen a corpse flower. When it blooms, it tends to be a big deal. In fact, there was a, one on the, the WSU campus, I think, last year that drew pretty big crowds. But yeah, when you see the inflorescence, I think the connection is very easy to see. But the Latin name of the genus is Amorphophallus. Amorpho meaning misshapen, and phallus, of course, meaning <laughs> penis. <laughs> they do look like that, but I'm just I'm thinking I probably wasn't going to go there with this, but yeah, okay. <laughs> all, all those botanists, botanists have got a better imagination than me. I didn't clue into that the genus may not have been part of the question. Uh. <laughs> yeah, going for the, the Latin name. So yeah, I mean, it's, this is, you know, it's official scientific classification. This is a science right. question. right. <laughs> All right. Now, Bill and Steve, now to steal from Jonathan on the next question. Right. The inaugural BBC Sports Personality of the Year, or Lottie, Lottie, I'm actually not sure how that acronym is pronounced, but um, that award was given, the inaugural one was given in 1954 to future Tory MP Chris Chataway, and not surprisingly to what man whose landmark sporting achievement that year was accomplished with Chataway's help. Okay. I think we might have this one. Chataway was one of the pacemakers for Roger Bannister's four-minute mile. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that's the year, of course, of the year after the four-minute mile. So the BBC awards given to the year before. So I'm thinking it probably should have gone to Roger Bannister, but it went to Chris Chataway instead. That's my thinking. Um, I would agree totally. And I don't want to just repeat everything you said. So I'm, <laughs> I'm comfortable locking in that answer. So you're locking yep. in Bannister? 
Yeah. All right. Unsurprisingly, that is correct. So I will give a bonus question here to Jonathan. It's more of a current events question. So we'll see if you've been paying attention to current news. So although his record as a professional or amateur sportsman is basically non-existent, what YouTuber has become an oddsmaker's favorite to capture the 2020 Sports Personality of the Year Award due solely to the instructional workout videos he's posted online? Hmm. Well, I can tell you that I have not been paying attention to this particular area of current events. Do you mind repeating the question? Yeah, although his record as a professional or amateur sports person is virtually non-existent, what YouTuber has become an oddsmaker's favorite, not the number one favorite, but in like the top three or five, to capture the 2020 Sports Personality of the Year Award due solely to the instructional workout videos he's posted online? What a YouTuber. Uh, I'm not really big on YouTube personalities, I must say. He's a non sports person. Well, when I think of popular YouTubers, there's really only one person I think of, so I'm just going to guess him. It's probably wrong, but I'm going to say PewDiePie. That'd be an interesting show. Yeah. So this is a, obviously a big current events story in the UK. It hasn't really crossed the Atlantic that much. But yeah, I mean, he's not so much. A, yeah, he's definitely not what we would think of as an athlete, but more of kind of a, a fitness uh, guru. But he's been encouraging children to work out during the quarantine by posting these kind of instructional workout videos. And his name is Joe Wicks. Joe Wicks. Never heard of him. Yeah, it's definitely something that is much more of a story in the UK. Mm-hmm. All right. It's it's, um, a, it's it's a bit of a story down here too, but I, I couldn't recall seen the videos, but I couldn't recall the name. So. Well, all right. So at least it was, you know, within the general knowledge orbit of us. <laughs> all right. Now, Bill and Jonathan to steal from Steve. Whoa. W-O-H, a 1998 horror drama that ran for 52 weeks on India's ZTV was an unauthorized and quite loose adaptation of what 1990 American miniseries with a similarly brief title. Oh, okay. TV's my worst subject, so I'm prepared to prepared to go with it whatever you reckon. Uh, well, I don't I I mean, I'm not big on TV either. I'm even less on horror, but I think that might be a clue. I mean, when I think of horror, I don't know that this was a miniseries, but it was certainly long that has short titles, really what I think of is it. And since this is three letters, two letters is similarly brief. So I probably not going to come up with a better guess than that, but I'm happy to discuss with you further. Yeah, oh, look, I wouldn't know if that, that's the Stephen King book based on yeah. the book, is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I do know that it's very long. I wasn't aware that it was a miniseries, but it might be. Yeah, I've, I've never heard of, I've heard of the book, but I've never heard of it being made into a miniseries. Is that about about the right year, do you think? Uh, yeah, well, I remember that I, against my wishes, I was made to watch at least part of it at a sleepover at a friend's house when I was about eight years old. So that would have been in 1992 or so. So if it was fairly new then, then that would make sense. I'm happy with that. All right. I'm going to say that we're going to guess it. All right. Yeah. So Wolf was inspired by basically glancing at the blurb on the back of the cover of it. None of his creators actually read the, the book, which clocks in it. <laughs> Well over a thousand pages, but one of them did view the miniseries, which um, kind of overshadowed now by the more recent feature films, but it very memorably had Tim Curry as Pennywise the Clown. So uh, yes, it is the correct answer. And I'll give the bonus, and again, these bonuses are often, probably should have mentioned earlier, are related to the question itself. They're not necessarily related to the person's uh, indicated specialist area, and they're not necessarily the same level of difficulty as the original question. But all right, your bonus for Steve 
One of the lead roles in Woe is played by Ashutosh Gowarikar. Three years before, he directed what 2001 sports movie that became the only Bollywood musical to date ever nominated for the Best Foreign Film Oscar? <laughs> um... Hmm. Well, as you may have guessed, my knowledge of Bollywood is a little spotty. Um, reference to the earlier questions. <laughs> so let me see if I can uh, come up with a wild guess here and think about sports that would be popular in India. And I'm going to guess and say the batsman. All right, you're, you're thinking of cricket, which is, in fact, the correct sport. But um, Okay. If <laughs> but it's the bowler, I'm going to be upset. <laughs> Just for fun, do either of you know it, Jonathan or Bill? Is this no? the one where Britt Lee from Australia has a starring role? Uh, I don't think so. Not that I can recall. But uh, I, believe yeah, I believe he's got a singing role in some Bollywood film, so um, that's a frightening. I've never seen it, but it would be a frightening prospect. I, I do no, know I that he recorded, a, he recorded a duet with Asha Bosley, the legendary Bollywood playback singer. Did he? But yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I'm, uh, not, I'm not sure if he was involved in this film, but this was called Lagan. Oh, of course, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> all right, next go to Steve and Jonathan to steal from Bill. This is, again, probably uh, all of Bill's questions will be somewhat tangentially related to his uh, indicator. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Paul G. Hoffman served as the first administrator of the UN Development Program, a role he was prepared for due to overseeing the implementation of the Marshall Plan in the late 1940s. So in order to take that position in the 40s as head of the Economic Cooperation Administration, he had to step down as president of what car company based in South Bend, Indiana, that eventually ceased production in 1966. Ah, uh, so Jonathan, mm -hmm. I I don't live that far from South Bend, and I'm trying to think of the photos that were up in my grandparents' house. The one that jumps out at me is Studebaker. Okay, I mean, uh, do you know? Uh, do you do you know that that was in Indiana? Do you? Um, so I am fairly certain that that was Midwest, and I'm also fairly certain that they ceased production um, in the late 60s. So That's I know that... That seems like more information than anything I'm going to be able to pull. So I'm just trying to think of um, other defunct automobile corporation so the one thing the, the one thing that comes to my mind and i am 99.9 .9 repeating percent sure that this is not <laughs> correct but i do know that the detroit pistons originally played in fort wayne indiana and they were called the zollner pistons was that a car company or is that named for something else i don't believe zollner was a car corp a okay company. So again, I uh, I am not a hundred percent sure. I'm just basing this off of you know a little bit of family history and knowing that all four of my grandparents at one point had Studebakers, but did not have a Studebaker when I was a kid. So uh, okay, fine with me. All right, then let's go ahead and key that in with fingers crossed and say Studebaker. All right, and uh, yeah, your family history has served you well here. Uh, Studebaker is correct. All right. And next question will go to Bill and Steve, trying to steal from Jonathan. So the Blake Street Bombers refers to four players who each hit over 30 home runs during the 1995 season while playing for what team whose home stadium has notoriously thin air? So I am 
are we asking for we're not asking for the players here we're asking for the team yeah okay well bill i'm uh, fairly certain for a variety of reasons that this refers to the colorado rockies because uh, more home runs get hit there yeah yeah that's the the thin air and they don't they tweak the baseballs by putting them in a humidifier and stuff like that? Well, um, there's long history of baseball tweaking uh, <laughs> coming <laughs> forward. So I think I'm about 100% sure that's the correct answer there. Well, Colorado's worked for me before, so let's go with it. Let's get it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, surprising amount of uh, baseball knowledge for a non-American. Uh, but but yeah, if you were following uh, baseball in the mid-90s, definitely you would know about like two Bombers they played for the Colorado Rockies. And um, your bonus, Jonathan, tying into another one of your uh, specialist areas, which one of the Blake Street Bombers became in 2020 only the second Canadian player to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame? That is, of course, Larry Walker, the first being Fergie Jenkins of the Cubs. Hey, uh, go Cubs! Every, everyone gets some points on that. Uh, two points for Steve and Bill and one for Jonathan. Just because we're on, you won't see this on the podcast, just look what a shirt I wore this morning. Oh, hey. nice. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. For the benefit of listeners, it's a New York Mets shirt. <laughs> it's the only time I've been to a major league game. I went to City Field a few years ago, saw the Mets play. Yeah, I had a question in a previous episode that hasn't aired yet about uh, City Field. I used to live just a few subway stops down from it on the 7th. Oh, okay. All right. So now Bill and Jonathan to steal from Steve. So as the designated heir of Rose Wilder Lane, the daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder, a man named Roger McBride owned the rights to the Little House book series. He was also at one point treasurer of the Republican Party of Virginia and served as a Republican elector in the U.S. presidential election of 1972. Now, at the Electoral College, he went what's called or he became what's called a faithless elector and cast his presidential and vice presidential votes not for the candidate he was pledged to, but for the ticket of John Hospers and Tony Nathan, which incidentally made Tony Nathan both the first woman and the first Jewish person to receive an electoral vote in U.S. history. Hmm. What party did that ticket of Hospers and Nathan represent? American politics. <laughs> um, I'm afraid my American politics knowledge may have ended with this question. <laughs> Uh, what party? That's presumably not the Democrats or the Republicans. No, it is. It is certainly not that. Uh, I mean, other wasn't the ref was the Reform Party around then? It might have been. I mean, there's also the Socialist Party. Wouldn't it? it doesn't sound like he's, he's an heir an heir to a fortune. He wouldn't be wouldn't be putting up the Socialist Party. Probably. Unless it's a, unless it's a weird a weird question. It's meant to be um meant to be yeah um. I don't know. Um, I mean, we could certainly try that. I, I've never. I, I must admit, I've never heard of any of the people referred to in this question. <laughs> yeah, well, he obviously didn't like Nixon. <laughs> uh, right, that's true. I mean, lots of people didn't. Although he still managed to win the election. Um, I mean, what are some other parties? There was the George Wallace had just run in '68 as the American Independence Party, but I don't know. Maybe that's it. Probably not. Um, there's the, I don't know, they were a bit earlier. Like Libertarian Party, Green Party. I don't know if the Green Party lit existed. Now I'm just giving, now I'm just giving, uh, giving ideas. Uh, probably should keep these to myself. <laughs> um, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, you've, your knowledge of the names of parties. 
is better than mine. So I, I, I would, I'd go with your sort of best guess at. I don't, I, I don't really, have, I don't really have one. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm likely to get the name of the party wrong, so I'll go. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm just gonna say, well, I'll go with, I'll go with your, with your guess. I'm just gonna say it's socialist party. Lock it in. All right, locked in socialist, Steve. Um, well, I'm trying to list all the sort of third parties I can, and then trying to guess who would be a breakoff of the Republican Party. And I don't think the Reform Party came around until um, Ross Perot in the maybe 92 election. So I'm kind of down to either the Libertarian Party, the I don't think it'd be the Greens, so I, I know at one point there was an America First party, but I'm kind of unclear about when that was. So I think I'm going to go with uh, the Libertarian Party. All right. Yeah. So, you know, I think you might mentioned um, Jonathan not being familiar with any of the names. I presume the exception to that was Laura Ingalls Wilder. Who, oh, yes. Know, correct. Yeah. <laughs> Most American children, you know, grow up being exposed to her stories. I w- I'm not quite the generation to have watched the TV series, which ran for a very long time. But certainly, you know. I'm actually I'm actually Canadian, so maybe maybe I don't I don't know if that holds true in Canada. But yes, I have heard of Laurie Mills Wilder. Yeah, definitely. The books were a big deal, and most you know children read them. They're treated as children's stories, not really delving into the subtext, any you know political subtext between them. But they were actually Laurie Mills Wilder actually published them late in life. They were heavily edited. Some people have even argued ghostwritten by her daughter Rose Wilder. Lane, who's actually a fairly uh, major figure in some circles of political ideology. In fact, uh, she kind of forms a, a trinity with two other women, Isabel Patterson and Ayn Rand, who are considered basically the founding mothers of the American libertarian movement. And as her protege, Roger McBride, was very much raised in that uh, libertarian mindset. And he did, in fact, cast his electoral vote for the ticket of the libertarian party. Whew. He left well, me uh, hanging for a long time there. Yeah, well done, Steve. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I wish I could say I knew that definitively from the start, <laughs> but I... Yeah. In a way, it's almost you know more impressive to kind of reason your way into some of these. All right, so now Steve and Jonathan to steal from Bill. So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states, all human beings are born free and equal in what and rights. On an episode of The Simpsons, Milhouse's mother famously illustrated this concept in a manner that was... Worthy of Webster's. Uh, so sorry, this is for who? Or Steve and Jonathan to steal from Bill. So I I know this from the Simpsons part, not from the Universal Declaration of Rights part. Um, I'm pretty sure this is from a game of Pictionary in the Simpsons living room, uh, <laughs> in which Kirk Van Houten somewhat nonsensically tries to draw a picture of dignity, which is then off-screen redrawn in a much more clear manner, apparently by uh, Millhouse's mother, Luann. So I'm going to say dignity. Uh, yeah, I would, um, again, not wanting to repeat everything that you have just said out loud, except wanting to put a reference into Kirk's song, Can I Borrow a Feeling, uh, from later in the episode. I would agree. All right. And, and you have correctly borrowed a feeling of getting two points. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Simpsons knowledge uh, often helpful. <laughs> I think I could uh, fill a book with the amount of trivia questions that I've gotten correct based on the Simpsons tie-in <laughs> rather than any actual world knowledge. Yeah, I still, uh, I still remember my first ICT losing a closely fought game against a much better team when they got a question about Pablo Neruda from a <laughs> <game that> my- <laughs> Simpsons. <laughs> 
Ah, I am familiar with the works of Pablo Neruda. <laughs> exactly. He's not one of the ABCs of science fiction like Alfred did. <laughs> All right. Uh, last question of this round before moving on to the only somewhat harder round where the questions will get a bit harder. This is Bill and Steve now to steal from Jonathan. So unlike with the U.S., Canada's independence from the U.K. was a slow and gradual process, didn't really involve any kind of war or revolution. In fact, one could argue that Canada did not become truly independent until it was completely patriated. In other words, until the British Parliament lost the right to amend the Constitution of Canada. In which decade did full and total patriation take place? Okay. This might be, if Australia's any guide, this might be quite late in the piece because I think Australia didn't remove itself entirely from under the British Crown. There was always an appeal. You could go beyond the Australian High Court to the Privy Council in London up until about the 1980s. So the legal system was still tied to the British Parliament because Australia was a Commonwealth under an act of the British Parliament. So I presume Canada as a dominion was probably under a similar act. So what point did then the Canadian Parliament repeal or patriate all of the sort of sub clauses or whatever that allowed people to go back to the British Parliament on a case of law or a case of um, something like that. That's what I'm thinking. So, as I said, it happened in the 80s in Australia. It was the Labor government in Australia in the 80s. So, I don't know. Who's, uh, who's, an, ind who's an independent-minded Canadian government that would have done that? Was it Trudeau's, the first Trudeau government, Pierre Trudeau's government? Uh, that would be the uh, probably only... Canadian prime minister I could name other than more recent <laughs> ones. Although I, I think uh, they used to make fun of Mulroney on Saturday Night Live quite a bit when I was a kid. So I guess that's another one. Um, but this does have the feel of one of those questions where it's much later than you would think at first glance. It may have been done as a sort of a part of a deal with the Quebecois independence movement or something as well they might have sort of said oh here's a bit of a, mm -hmm. a deal we'll make with you so that sounds like the 70s to me but yeah i would guess it's either 70s or 80s but i guess the connection maybe it was part of a broader movement so guessing that it was the same time as australia seems like our best bet yeah i'm, I'm prepared to go a bit earlier i think it might have been done a bit earlier than australia i think it could be the 70s just because of the trudeau connection the quebec movement okay I don't know, the Montreal Olympics, who knows? It could have been. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I am willing to cede control of this question since your reasoning is there. I'm fine with 70s or 80s. Right. Which do you think? I still think maybe the 70s, yeah. All right, that sounds good to me. Okay, then right. our answer is the 1970s. All right, Jonathan, is that right? You talked yourself out of it. So uh, the, the so so you you talked yourself into it at the beginning. So the British government still maintained the right to amend the Canadian Constitution until patriation and the passing of the Constitution Act 1982, uh, which finally gave Canada full you know their full independence pants. So it's the 1980s. Mm, sorry, yeah, uh, about, sorry about that, Stephen. No, that's all right. Yeah, Which the uh, was that Jonathan. Whose government was that? Uh, it was still towards the the very end of the of Trudeau the Elder's government. He was prime minister, I think, until '84 when Mulroney came in. If I'm getting the uh, years right. And uh, who is the one with the the fuddle duddle comment? Oh, that's Trudeau. Uh, in, that's Trudeau. Okay. Again, again, Trudeau the Elder. Yes. Yeah. For my money, Canada's greatest prime minister, Trudeau the Elder. There's about half the country would agree with you, and the other half would absolutely not. Ah. Uh. Sorry, I'm once again trying to tie in The Simpsons here. <laughs> uh, 
All right. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to cut off this conversation because uh, <laughs> it may possibly relate to a question that will come up later. Okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, the Constitution Act in, in Canada and, and the Canada Act in the UK, both I think were in, in 1982. And so I thought we were going to have uh, seven out of nine steals in this round, which would be a very high number, maybe a record for this podcast. But that last one fell short. So we only had six out of nine steals. Still very impressive. And at the end of this round, I believe, I'll go back and recheck all these scores after the game, but I believe we have 9.1 for Steve, 8.2 for Bill, and 10.2 for Jonathan. So extremely tightly packed, and point values will go up in the next round, the only somewhat hard round, where each question will be worth four points as a steal, three points as a specialist, and two points if there happens to be a bonus. All right, so everyone ready to continue? Yes. Yes. All right, so we'll start with Bill and Jonathan to steal from Steve. The 1967 period musical comedy western, The Fastest Guitar Alive, marked marked the only starring film role for what popular singer whose powerful voice led to him being dubbed the Caruso of Rock? One song from that film, There Won't Be Many Coming Home, was used by Quentin Tarantino over the closing credits of The Hateful Eight, but this man's songs are more associated with the filmmakers Gary Marshall and David Lynch. So I, I think I actually had a question about this in a trivia competition literally within the last week. Wow. And, sorry, who am I partnered with here? Bill, Bill and Jonathan. Okay. I'm hoping that I'm not misremembering it, that, that this is in fact the same movie that was being referred to. And I had never heard of this before, and I did not get it right that time, but I think I remember it. And if I am not mistaken, so the, definitely the answer to the question that I heard before is Roy Orbison. And I think the question that I had before was who made his only film appearance in The Fastest Guitar Alive, which was a 1967 comedy western. I don't really have any other specific knowledge that any of the other clues refer to Roy Orbison, so I'm happy to discuss this. But that's what I would guess. I, I'll go with you. I think that's that's a better connection than I've had. But I, I'd imagine it sounds like Roy Orbison would be used by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not a big Tarantino guy. I don't know all the details of his soundtracks, but I mean, if you're happy with that, that was my first guess. That's what I would say. Go for it. Okay, put it in. Lock Roy it in. Orbison, lock it in. All right. So yeah, I didn't uh, participate or observe whatever uh, competition you're referring to because I <laughs> had, haven't heard any questions about this in recent memory. So it is a coincidence, but yeah, that does happen. I mean, there's a finite number of facts in the world, yeah. and people, will, you know, pick the ones that are interesting. And this is a pretty interesting fact. The other uh, references, just for clarity, um, the song In Dreams, heavily featured in uh, Blue Velvet, and a Spanish-language cover of Crying is a key scene in uh, Mulholland Drive. And, of course, another one of his songs, Oh Pretty Woman, gave a title to a blockbuster romantic comedy directed by Gary Marshall. All right. Well, if you go to enough trivia nights. Yeah, I mean, that's how you you learn, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Now, uh, Steve and Jonathan to steal from Bill. So, diplomat George Kennan is famous for many things, but perhaps his biggest contribution to foreign policy was coming up with ways to selectively deploy foreign aid in line with what strategy of dealing with the Soviet Union. Kennan coined the name for this strategy in the Sources of Soviet Conduct, his famous article written under the pseudonym X, when he wrote, In these circumstances, it is clear that the main element of any United States policy toward the Soviet Union must be that of long-term, patient, but firm and vigilant this of Russian expansive tendencies. Yep. Um, so coincidentally, right now I'm teaching the Cold War to my students. Um, 
via distance learning. And one of the things that I made them read and comment on yesterday was the containment doctrine. So unless I've made a grave error as a teacher, I believe the word we're after here is containment. Yeah, fine with me. Go for it. All righty. Uh, yeah, that is a term that was used in the famous X article or sources of Soviet conduct. Uh, again, just, yeah, serendipity. Obviously, I have absolutely no knowledge of what you're <laughs> teaching. So, yeah. Um, and I'll give a bonus to Bill. And again, this is probably going to be much harder for non-Americans, but can't be helped. So by my count, there have been four people who both won a Pulitzer Prize for biography and autobiography for something they wrote, and who were the subject of a biography written by someone else that also won that same Pulitzer Prize. One was George Kennan. Name any of the other three. Ooh. So, um, John F. Kennedy? Is that what you're locking in? Oh, lock in John F. Kennedy. Yeah, so um, one of them is uh, Charles Lindbergh, who won for The Spirit of St. Louis. One of the few non-controversial things that he wrote. Um, uh, I think the very first winner in that category was Henry Adams, who won posthumously for Education of Henry Adams. And there have been many books, not just about Henry Adams, but about several different members of the Adams family uh, that have won (laughs) Pulitzer Prizes in that category. And, uh, yeah, Arthur Schlesinger, of course, won uh, fairly soon after Kennedy's death for his profile of Kennedy and Kennedy himself won for the mostly ghostwritten, um, although he did supervise the writing, he wasn't uninvolved, didn't do the writing himself, his book Profiles in Courage. So, yes, he is a correct answer. Everyone gets some points on that, and we'll move into the next question for Bill and Steve to steal from Jonathan. My all-time favorite pop psychology book, Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath, describes how you can make your ideas sticky, in other words, make them kind of stick with people and successfully propagate by following the principles of success. And by success, they mean making your message simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional, and a story. It's an acronym. So in order to illustrate the credibility principle in their book, they cite the simple, unexpected, concrete, and emotional story of how obscure Australian researchers Barry Marshall and Robin Warren drew attention to their theory that gastritis and peptic ulcers were caused by a bacterium now known as Heliobacter pylori. Specifically, what did Marshall do to dramatically make his point? Oh, I think this is where, if I'm right, I think he, the researchers, because it's, it was to do with stomach ulcers, and I think something about they ate worms. They gave themselves a worm infestation. I think you're close, but I think he actually ingested the Heliobacter pylori. And yep. I, I, yeah. Yep. Some, they they or, ingested we, what it was, yeah. Yeah. So I'm pretty sorry. I think that story was made popular, too, in a recent Malcolm Gladwell book, perhaps. Yeah. And I think they treat it with just basically antibiotics. So... Mm. Presumably he infected himself and then gave himself a dose of antibiotics and cured himself. Yeah. The worms was the worms was another thing. The worms was curing an allergy. Oh, thing. okay. That was a, yeah. an, that was another Australian research. We like eating things here that just you know, <laughs> it's kind, of, kind of an Australian research principle as we um, yeah um, things. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. All right. Can we go with that then? All right. So you're saying he basically ingested a culture of the bacterium. Yes. And and then treated himself with antibiotics, I think. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly right. Yeah. Hmm. I'm in a class about research right now, and I believe the story came up again in stories about difficulty finding informed consent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll just, um, I'll sign this form myself. <laughs> 
All right, now Bill and Jonathan to steal from Steve, and I'll I don't I won't put a hard limit, but there will be a soft limit on the amount of time it takes for this, because otherwise uh, it might you know you could potentially spend a very long time deliberating. All right, so here's the question again: Bill and Jonathan to steal from Steve. Only two U.S. presidents have taken office in an even-numbered year. Name both of them. Taken office other than being elected. Right. So I think one is Washington. I think he's, I don't know, well, no, it might not, no, no, I, no, I'm not sure that's right. Um, what year did Ford take over? Yeah, that could be one. Uh, so who, let's see, who, who, so who took over? From McKinley, from Lincoln. That, well, that was, so that was Roosevelt. So, so, well, Lincoln was assassinated in 1865. So that wouldn't be right. Uh, McKinley, I thought it was 1901. Oh, no. So Johnson took over in '63 because he got, he took over right away. Um, Is the question inaugurated or sworn in? Yeah, can we can we have the exact wording of the question? Only two U.S. presidents have taken office in taken basically office. for the first for the first time in an even numbered year. Name both. Okay, so Johnson's one of them. No, no, it was in '63, wasn't it? Oh, sorry, yeah, '63. Yeah, sorry, um, I'm getting confused. Was there a case where, in the early days of the presidency, if you got elected in November, you got sworn in almost immediately? You didn't wait until no. January. No, you used to wait. You, no, you used to wait till March. Then they actually moved it up. Ah, okay. Well, that's why. Okay. Um, who else was there? Um, so there was Harrison. No, he died, and he died in giving the inauguration inaugural. So that was eighteen forty one. Um, then there was Lincoln. Would have been 60, 1865. Uh, Garfield. Who took over from Garfield? I can't help you on that one. Arthur. <laughs> then Harding. Harding died, and Arthur took over. Garfield. I don't even remember who took over from Tru- Garfield. Truman was Truman was forty five as well. So right. So they're all odd numbered years. What was Roosevelt? Nineteen oh one was it? I think Roosevelt was nineteen oh one. Yeah. So uh, basically, just from the process of elimination, I would. Oh, okay. Hold on. Hold on. Let's let's keep going. Let's keep going. So, yeah. So it's not it's not Truman. It's not Johnson. Uh, I don't. Is it? It's. It, is it Ford or was Ford in seventy five? Well, seventy four. Or seventy four. Yeah, it might have been seventy four. Yeah, I would maybe say Ford and Arthur. I'm happy to go with whatever you think. Yeah, I don't really know. So this is going to be a guess. It's probably not going to be right. But if you're okay with me guessing that, I'm going to guess that. Okay? I'm going to say... So are you okay with that? Yep, yep. Fine. I'm, I'm okay. okay with that. I'm going to say Ford and Arthur. All right. I will keep quiet for now about those guesses and pass it over to Steve. Um. So I am thinking that one of them is Washington. And I think I'm, I'm trying to... Elections in even-numbered years, usually inaugurations in odd. So I think one is Washington, and then I think the other is Ford. And I'll, I'll say those are my final answers. All right, so you're locking in uh, Washington and Ford? Correct. Okay, yeah. So Washington, I think, had technically the only election held in a odd-numbered year, because I think when the becoming the first president, the election kind of went from late 1788 to early, to like the beginning of January in 1789. But he uh, became president pretty much immediately after that, still in 1789. So he did come in an odd-numbered year. 
Gerald Ford, as both of you kind of figured out, or as all of you kind of figured out, took office when Nixon resigned in 1974. So he is a correct answer. The other one, he took office when his predecessor, Zachary Taylor, died in 1850. Mm. His name was Millard Fillmore. Mm. That's a great question. Yep. <laughs> not going to get that one. I can't uh, ask that one. Said... An Australian pub quiz night. I can't ask that one. <laughs> no one will get it. <laughs> I don't think anyone will get it out of American pub quiz night either. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a tough one. Yeah, but, uh, but only the second zero-pointer of the game. That's uh, pretty impressive. All right, next question to Stephen Jonathan to steal from Bill. Traditional Indian medicine has long advocated eating which part of the elephant foot yam, our old friend, and uh, give a, a little bit of a plant anatomy clue. Like roots, tubers, rhizomes, and bulbs, these plant structures function as storage organs, which allow perennials to survive under adverse conditions. And then I will give one non-plant-related clue. If you don't know what they're called, try starting with the name of a private detective who has to date appeared in four novels by Robert Galbraith, and then truncating all but the first four letters. Can you post that in the Sorry, just a second. I can't remember all those clues. <laughs> that was that was a bit. Oh, uh, like roots, tubers, rhizomes, and bulbs, these plant structures function as storage organs. Hmm. Uh, date appeared in four novels by Robert Galbraith, and then truncating all but the first. So it's four letters. Okay, that's helpful. All right. Um, do you know any detectives? <laughs> appearing in novels by Robert Galbraith. I don't. I don't either. Is Robert uh, Galbraith, I might be making this up, but isn't that J.K. Rowling's pseudonym? Oh, I know that the first name of that pseudonym is Robert. Um, and that doesn't help me because I, yeah. I haven't read Whether it is or not, I haven't read any of the books. That, that's uh, <laughs> one step forward on a million step uh, right. journey. So I also, uh, Roots... Tubers, rhizomes, and bulbs. I mean, the, the one thing that I can think of is seed. I'm thinking seed or skin, but... Um, I'm not sure either of those are storage organs. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, a seed... Well, no. Allowing perennial to survive under adverse conditions. Hmm. These plant structures... I used to know plant structures... Uh, yeah, if I go back to freshman year biology for high school, I might be mm. right on this one. Yeah. Um, how's your knowledge of Indian medicine? Mine's uh, pretty scant. Not very good. <laughs> uh, do, 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 do. These plant structures, root, stem. Stem? Stem? Uh, I think we're closer with seed. Stem, seed, trunk, bark. Bark? Bark. Uh, Bark sounds uh, wouldn't be. Uh, I want to um, say pod, but that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, what what what, you, what of the things that we've said so far? What do you like the best? I like seed the best. Go for it. All right, we'll key that in. All right, in seed. Yeah, I think uh, as you intuited, it really isn't a storage organ. It's the thing that the plant grows from. <laughs> but um, all right, I'll just pass it to Bill. Yeah, um, the bit that is eaten is the bit that's underground, which is like the, the yam or potato part of it, which is sliced and dried. But mm. what's the botanical or biological name for that? Four letters? Um, I don't know. What have we been given? It's We've been given root, tuber, rhizome, bulb. It's that thing. 
And Robert Galbraith, yes, is J.K. Rowling, but I've never read any of the detective books, so I don't know who the detective is. So between biology and literature and holding this thing in my hand, I have no idea what that four-letter thing's called. I would have said bulb, um, I would have said root, tuber, uh, rhizome, spud, <laughs> yammy thing. Look, I don't know the four-letter biological term, but Yogesh is going to tell us and we're all going to groan. I know that, so... <laughs> Um, no, sorry, pass on that one. All right. I don't know if you even feel recognized. It's probably an obscure term unless you clearly work with that kind of plants. But uh, I also happen to have right next to me, I, I won as a prize at uh, Chicago Open Trash a couple years ago, a copy of The Cuckoo's Calling, the first Robert Galbraith novel. Mm-hmm. Mm. Or the not first J.K. Rowling novel. I'm going to think of it. It says on the front of it, The Cuckoo's Calling, a CB strike novel. You have to turn it over to read the blurb. When a troubled supermodel falls to her death from the balcony of her London home, it is assumed that she committed suicide. However, her brother has his doubts and calls in private detective Cormoran Strike to investigate. So that was, yeah, my attempt to clue you that this structure is called a corm. Uh, I've never heard of it. <laughs> never heard of that. I am with you as well. I've never heard of it. All right. Well, you've been having a bunch of questions that were uh, fairly easy for you. So, yeah, I guess it's okay to have a few that are... No, fair enough. Stuff. I've got to learn something. That's what we've yeah. learned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So uh, we'll return to the sciences for the next one for Bill and Steve to steal from Jonathan. So a man named... Douglas Prasher spent much of his career convinced that a certain protein isolated from the species Acoria victoria could be used as an easily identifiable biochemical marker. Despite the potentially massive applications of this creative proposal, he was unable to secure funding to pursue it and ended up being forced to leave academia entirely. In 2008, when other scientists won a Nobel Prize for following up on his idea, reporters tracked down Prasher and learned that his primary occupation at the time was driving a courtesy shuttle at a Toyota dealership in Huntsville, Alabama for $8.50 an hour. So here's the question. Broadly speaking, what kind of animal is Aquaria Victoria? Aquaria Victoria. Apologize for my Latin pronunciation is probably way off on that. You can see the spelling in the text. All right. Is it a plant or an animal? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Easily identifiable. It could be like a mollusk or a a sea creature, couldn't it? Uh, Yeah. um, So I don't know what qualifies something as an easily identifiable uh, biochemical marker. It says animal. Okay. So would uh, any of our... Aquaria sounds like water. No, it isn't. It's A-E-Q-U, so Aquaria, Victoria. Hmm. Kind of an animal. Hmm. No, there's so many billions of species of animals. Possibly one could be right. So my my guess, I don't know if there's any relationship. Coming from nowhere here, I wonder if it's um, like a seahorse or something. (laughs) Poor little sea. Poor little seahorses. <laughs> um, but I, I'm trying to figure out what the Victoria connection would be if uh, it could be nothing. It could be just a, a relative of whoever discovered this thing. Yeah, or Queen Victoria. I don't know. Some kind of animal, but probably not a seahorse. Yeah. That sounds um, a bit, We could go really general. What kind of animal? We could say, broadly speaking, could be like snail or yeah. cockroach or bat or something, you know. Um, um, that's so the kind of answer that we're looking for. I think he's looking for. There's no um, AEQU 
is not at all related to uh, Equus as like a marker for horses, is it? Is that what Seahorse? Uh, that's a, that's EQ. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I am comfortable with uh, snail, snail or fish. Snail. Fish or snail, yeah. I like fish. You like fish? There are so many things as things that are. I think a taxonomist would tell you that there's no such thing as a fish, <laughs> uh, according to the latest genetic analysis of taxonomy and species. But fish sounds like it could be the answer. There's plenty of them. All right. All right. You want to lock we'll that in? Yeah, we'll go, go with fish. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Yeah. And uh, another person who would say there is no such thing as a fish is my Facebook friend, James Harkin, who <laughs> runs the podcast of that name <laughs> from QI. All right. Jonathan? So I don't know this. I'm trying to think what protein could be specifically described here. Don't give me a lot of hints here. Um, for some reason, the first thing that popped into my head was that around then there was Nobel Prize given for some work on worms, although I can't remember exactly what the work was, and I could be making that up. So I'm trying to wait and see if something else pops into my head. Um, what kind of protein could you be referring to? Or biochemical marker could you be referring to? No, I'm not coming up with anything. I'm going to guess worm. Uh, yeah. So when writing these questions, you know, basically, you know, you start with the interesting fact and then you it's kind of like, I think, it's supposed to be, I think, Michelangelo who was asked how he made a sculpture and said, you know, start with a block of marble and remove everything that doesn't look like a sculpture. Right. Um, yeah. With these questions. Yeah. You start with kind of an interesting uh, nexus of facts and then you kind of like chip away little parts of it and hope that people that some but not all people will be able to make the intuitive or the leaps necessary to complete the picture. So in this case, I removed a certain word because I thought it might maybe provide too big a hint. In terms of biochemical marker, right, the important thing is that you can just kind of see it, you know, when looking at it. So the word that I chose not to use was fluorescent. Right. So the protein famously used as a biochemical marker in now millions of experiments probably is called green fluorescent protein. And it comes from the, you were on the right track with looking at the ocean invertebrates, the ocean invertebrate that fluoresces. Broadly speaking, they're usually called jellyfish. If mm. you mm. Okay. Uh, and of course, um, fish is a kind of vertebrate. So uh, the jellyfish <laughs> is not actually a kind of fish. So I couldn't really prompt on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question, going back to pop culture, might be a little more to you guys' uh, wheelhouse. All right, Bill and Jonathan, now to steal from Steve. So I began this episode by mentioning the New Zealand playwright and screenwriter Anthony McCartan, who wrote both the screenplay and the original play The Two Popes was based on. That was not the first movie he wrote to earn a Best Actor Oscar nomination. In fact, of his last four produced screenplays, it's actually the only one that didn't win the Best Actor Academy Award. So name any of the three films he scripted or co-scripted that earned their leading man an Academy Award. Hmm. Anthony McCartan. Yeah, I'll wait for it to come up on the chat. Well, he's from a lot closer to your neck of the woods <laughs> than mine, so maybe you've heard of him, because I certainly haven't. No, I've, I haven't heard of his name. Um, he's from New Zealand, which is, you know. I know. It's really, it's farther. It's a lot. It's really far away. <laughs> I know. It's over there. Over there. All right. Okay. Screenplay in the original play, The Two Popes. It wasn't the first movie he wrote to win a Best Actor nomination. He didn't win the Best Actor Academy Award. Name any of the three films he has scripted or co-written that earned their leading man an Oscar win. Okay. 
So I've never seen the two popes. Neither have I. But let's go down and let's think of some recent Best Actor Academy Award winners. Yeah, any of the three films. Uh, he didn't write... Um, I know he didn't write three billboards. That was um, Martin McDonough. Um, and that didn't win a Best Actor. It won right, Best so what, Supporting. So, so who, uh, who, who's won Best Actor Oscars lately? Lately? I don't know. It's a blind spot for me to Oscars. I know it's one of those things you should remember, you know, should memorize for. Yeah, I know. Especially the later ones I'm not so good with. Um, Trivia nights. All right. What are some famous, who are some famous actors? Yeah. You think of actors, I'll think of films that someone like Anthony McCartan might, if he wrote The Two Popes, what other kinds of screenplays would he have written? Right. Yeah. Um,. No, he doesn't write sci-fi, which wouldn't get you a best actor in many cases anyway. Um, co-scripted as well. No. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of. Well, we got to get. We have to get some. We, we have, have to, to get a film. Of some we kind. have to get some film that won that won some Oscars. A best a best actor Oscar for somebody. Um, what about um, Anthony Redmayne? That was the mm. theory, theory of everything? Sure. Go with it. I like it. Okay. Theory of everything. All right. You're, you're locking in the theory of everything? Yeah, why not? All right. Yeah. So that is, that is in fact, Ed, a correct Eddie answer. Redmayne, not, Eddie no, Redmayne. Yeah. Right. Well Eddie done. Redmayne, well done. Redmayne. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, was, I was going to give a little more background, but I think I will actually just throw this over to Steve and see if he can name one of the other two for two points. Oh, um, well, that was the one I had. <laughs> now it's gone. So I'm trying to think of other uh, recent films that have maybe a Commonwealth connection, but I, I don't know. So I'm wondering, the only film that leaps to mind is maybe the Florida Project, but I'm not even sure if that's in the right ballpark. But that's the only thing that's coming to mind right now. So I'll stick with that. Okay, yeah. Florida Project didn't, uh, yeah, didn't win the best mm-hmm. actor, and yeah, it's set, as you might get from the title, kind of the area around uh, Disney right. World. Uh, yeah, so um, going with kind of the broad similarity in, in theme and subject matter, right, these were all movies that were based on true stories that were set during the 20th century that focused on a real-life, basically a real-life British figure who lived during the mm-hmm. 20th century. So yeah. the period of everything was about Stephen Hawking. The others were Darkest Hour with Gary Oldman as mm. Churchill and Bohemian Rhapsody with Rami Malek. Oh, okay. Uh, all right, all right. All right, so that drive streak ended on that with Bill and Jonathan getting points, and now... Sorry, <laughs> can I ask you for just for a pause for a second? Okay. Sorry, my pager actually just went off. I just need to go look at it. I'm sorry. Fair enough. Okay, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm back. I can... I, th- I think I think it can wait until we're done. Okay, yeah. Bill, Bill went to feed his dog, so presumably he'll be back shortly. Jonathan, what uh, part of Canada are you from? Toronto. Okay, my brother-in-law is from London. London, Ontario. Uh, yeah, which I believe is just nearby, right? Yeah, I went to medical school in London, Ontario. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Okay. And my wife is from there, actually. Oh, so uh, one of my favorite jokes that my brother-in-law likes to reference is that anytime somebody finds out that he's from Canada, they immediately ask him if he knows a certain person, like the other person they know who's also from Canada. Right. And he has to point out to him that there are many millions of people in Canada and he doesn't know all of them. 
Yeah, and one of my things, I like to collect um, questions that seem like they're specific and detailed, but actually have multiple correct Mm -hmm. answers. Uh, Like, what country has a city named London that is on the River Thames? Right. (laughs) All right. Now, Steve and Jonathan to steal from Bill. So, um, elephant foot yam is one of many things that are sometimes used as an ingredient in uh, katkate, a vegetable stew or gravy dish, part of the cuisine of what region that was annexed by India in 1961's Operation Vijay? I'm just going to wait to see that. Yeah. For the first several episodes, it didn't even occur to me to use the chat. A contestant mm. named Jack Russo made that suggestion, and it was very helpful. What um, region? Well, I'm trying to think of how many regions I can name, period. But what is the the region that's still rather disputed? Is that uh, the Kashmir? Kashmir? Yeah. Uh, yeah, although I, I don't think they... I'm quite ignorant of Indian history, but... I don't think they annexed it. I think it was just part of it, and there are some people that are and so some... happy about that. But I don't think it was an annexation. Okay, I could be completely wrong about that. Um... I'm. I think it might be. So what are what are some what are, what are some re- I mean one famous region of that area is Punjab, which also had there is a part of the Punjab which is in Pakistan. So it's certainly conceivable to me that during one of the Pakistan Indian Wars. They may have annexed part of it. Mm. Um, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's lots of other regions of India. I mean, I know there are, but that's so, sort of one. That's sort of something that popped into my head immediately. What? Again, I, I'm with you. My Indian history is pretty weak, but there were parts of India that were held by other European powers during the fire. And I'm wondering if one of those was annexed later on, after mm. independence. I don't think so, but... No, I think by, by 1961, I think most of the Europeans were gone from that area. Okay, so we're assuming this is something to do with conflict with Pakistan? Yeah, so there, yeah. So, I mean, what are, so, I mean, other regions, there's also Bengal as a region, not... Uh, I know Uttar Pradesh is... Oh, it's a it's a province. It's, it's okay. More, it's more it's more it's and it's more central, if I'm not mistaken. So I don't okay. think that would have been annexed I after guess. the creation of the country. How uh, how do we interpret the word region here? So <laughs> I, I mean, I think I think re, I think region is different than a state. You know, than the name of a state. Yeah. So um, um, yeah, a region that was an, yeah. I'm I, I'm still I'm still liking Punjab. I don't okay. know that it's right. It's still speaking to me as a guess. Um, if we want to talk some more, we can talk some more. Kashmir is the only thing that really jumps out to me as a possibility, just because I know it's disputed, but that, that alone doesn't make me very sure. So I'm fine with that. I'm fine with Punjab. So I guess if you feel even this much surer of Punjab, then... I think I feel exactly this much surer. (laughs) Should we say, let the record reflect that they are holding their fingers as close as possible without (laughs) actually touching? Uh, Yeah, so I I think I'm that much more certain about Punjab than I am about Kashmir. All right, then I'm in agreement. Okay, so we'll say Punjab. All right. And yes, it's, it's fine to do it with a, a low degree of confidence. Not everyone grows up learning about Indian history, <laughs> as I've discovered over the years. Um, but OK, you, you're locked in Punjab? Yep. Yep. Bill? OK. Um, I don't know the answers to this one, but I'll sort of try and work through my thinking. Um, elephant foot yams indigenous to the northeast of India 
northwest of Myanmar, southern southeast China. So it's it's up in that corner of of India. So what happened in 1961? Well, in terms of provinces, Goa was taken back from the Portuguese about then, but I think that was that's nowhere near that region. So we will eliminate Goa. There was the Indo-Chinese war along the border there, but I don't think there was any territory annexed by India. There's still a lot of disputed boundary along there, and that might have been 1962 anyway. I think it's one of the border regions with a large ethnic minority population along the Burmese border, and I know there's been a lot of trouble quite recently with some of the indigenous groups up there in the border crosses. So, and I did used to work with a guy whose father was in the Indian Army who was posted up there, and I'm going to guess Nagaland, which is a region but it's part of a sam province now i think it's been annexed into a sam a sam state so nagaland is my best guess yeah yeah the, the boundary between kind of region and state is a little amorphous but yeah i could have said state in the question but i think both of your guesses are technically state so it wouldn't have affected a lot but yeah i think in this case you are um you should have stuck with your your historical knowledge which seems to be quite good and maybe not on your uh your chosen topic of focus might have led you astray because, yeah, as, as you all kind of danced around, the territory that India fights over with its neighbors, with China and Pakistan, is really more disputed. No one would really say India has annexed it because it's still very much a, a sore point of contention. In terms of what they unambiguously took under Nehru, right, they basically took back the land that Europeans still had. So they weren't actually all out of India when the British left in 47. The French were still around until 54, and the Portuguese very much wanted to hold on to their Indian uh, territory, which is why Nehru basically authorized taking it by force in Operation Vijay. They attempted to send military ships, but Gamal Abdel Nasser, the dictator of Egypt, blocked them from going through the Suez Canal, which enabled India to hold on and annex these territories, the most famous of which is Goa. Mm. Okay. Nuts. All right. And now the last question of this round before we move on to the super hard round. <laughs> this <laughs> this goes to Bill and Steve first to steal from Jonathan. So March 17th, 1980, better known as Silver Thursday, saw an unsuccessful end to an attempt to corner the silver market by three brothers with what surname? One of those brothers, maybe the most famous, arguably, was a Kansas City-based tycoon who helped found the American Football League, World Championship Tennis, and Major League Soccer. And in fact, he's in the Hall of Fame for all three of those sports, despite never having played any of them. He's also credited with coining the term Super Bowl. So, Bill, I'm fairly certain the last name here is Hunt. It is. It's Nelson Bunker Hunt, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, and I'm thinking of Lamar Hunt, the uh, oh, no, founder. Not Nelson of, yeah. it's Lam- Who's Nelson Bunker Hunt? Is he someone else? He's someone Maybe, else, isn't he? Yeah, Lamar Hunt, <laughs> I, I believe, was the founder of the Chiefs. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the the answer we want here is Hunt. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember reading something about this too, yeah. Yeah. All right. You're logging in, Hunt? We're logging it in. All right, yeah. So there are multiple ways in here from kind of the business econ angle, the sports angle, even possibly a movie angle, if you're familiar with the Dan Aykroyd and A. Murphy comedy Trading Places, which was somewhat inspired by the Hunt <laughs> brothers. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, Lamar Hunt is the one who was involved in all those sports. And a bonus for Jonathan Speaking of Lamar Hunt, located next to Subtropolis and part of a complex with an adjoining water park, what major Kansas City amusement park was founded by Lamar Hunt in 1973? I have absolutely no idea. I am not familiar with water parks. I am not familiar with Kansas City. I am not really familiar with Lamar Hunt very much, other than the facts that you provided in the initial question. Sorry, are you looking for a water park or an amusement park? The amusement park. 
Water Park has a similar but slightly different name, but the amusement park is a name for the overall complex. Fun Zone. Surprisingly close for a, for a blind guess. The water park, I think, is called Oceans of Fun, but the overall amusement park is called Worlds of Fun. Wow. Operated by Cedar Fair. Okay. In the previous episode, yeah, that's a bit of regional knowledge. But at the end of this round, I believe we have scores of Steve 21.1, Bill 26.2, Jonathan 22.2. So again, lots of steals and very closely packed. And now the next round, the Final round, the super hard round. Sorry, sorry. If we're going to have another round, I do think I have to return this page. Can you give me two minutes? I'm sorry. I will be back. I'm very uh, nervous to see what exactly a very, very hard round uh, entails when I feel like I'm adding about 25% here. (laughs) That's a common reaction, but this isn't the podcast people go to for easy questions that make them feel smart for knowing the answers. More the ones that kind of... They learn things, and then they feel really smart when they do know an answer. Yeah, well, it's like I tell the kids at school, any question's easy when you know the answer. Right. So where are you podcasting from? I'm in Vancouver, Washington, so right across the river from Portland. Okay. Close enough to Canada? Yeah, a lot of people say that it's, well, I guess broadly speaking it is, because it's the Pacific Northwest, but like it's not that close to Canada. Oh, okay. Well, I took myself out of the Goa one, didn't I? You know, I was thinking anytime it comes to questions about parts of the world I've never been, my brain goes right away to the (laughs) diplomacy game board. Um, And I believe Goa is a territory in diplomacy, the worldwide edition. And uh, I I guess I I should have uh, stuck on it, but... These are the most fun kind of questions to play where uh, you get to reason it out, not where you just know immediately. Yeah, I think I'm being persecuted on Elephant Foot Yam because <laughs> one of my only presences on the internet is a TED Talk, Petra Kucha Talk, I gave on Elephant Foot Yams from Burma. And I think Yogesh has decided now to use this to destroy me. <laughs> <laughs> I had to basically go on, you know, what you put down on your sheet. And yeah, you pretty much only, you gave me very little to work with, probably less than any <laughs> other has given me to work with. And I briefly considered, because like if you're in Australia, I briefly considered just kind of making Australia one of your categories or, you know, something like that. But then I was like, nope. I set this challenge for myself to give people their categories. And if we had had a few more days of lead time, I might have like emailed you and asked you for another one. But, you know, since yeah, that, I was, These are good. I'm enjoying them very much. They're yeah, agreed. Good. I hope that the next time I can go to a pub quiz, everybody else will groan when they announce the categories, but I'll celebrate the elephant foot yam. I'm going to be all over Cormorant Strike. <laughs> <laughs> That's an unforgettable name. Mm-hmm. I'm just getting my son to bring me a cup of tea. I hope Jonathan's not getting a call out. Yeah, I'm kind of nervously waiting for him. If necessary, I'll try and like just get you all. Okay, I'll call back. Thanks so much. Okay, thanks so much. Bye. Sorry about that. I'm back. All right. So let's just push on through then to final round. These super hard round questions are now worth six points as a steal, five as a specialist, three as a bonus, which there'll only be a few of, and Bill and Jonathan now to steal from Steve. Okay. After creating several cult classic TV series, Joss Whedon found mainstream success writing and directing Marvel's The Avengers, one of the highest grossing films of all time. But well before that, he earned his only Oscar nomination as one of seven credited screenwriters on what groundbreaking hit film of 1995? Okay, groundbreaking hit film of 1995. Bill and Jonathan first. Oh, sorry, you're right. No, you can tell us if you have Stephen. If we're yeah. on the track. <laughs> I'm um, glad I didn't shout it out. This seems like something that I should know. I'm going to throw in, is it Clueless? Yeah, that sounds right. 
because it's quirky. Wasn't it? Was that, that written by one per, one woman though? It wasn't written by a team of screenwriters. Well, that that I don't know. I mean, it's based on a Jane Austen novel, so yeah. <laughs> that sounds there was, there was a, that certainly sounds plausible. Because we're thinking '95 films in '95. Uh, there was a question on Learned League the other day about, you know, that Goldeneye was the answer for the shooter, first-person shooter game, and I noticed one of the best answers was Sense and Sensibility because that was a film from 95. <laughs> mm. So, <laughs> yeah, which would be good as a shoot 'em up um, Clueless, Sense and Sensibility, what else is 95? Seven credited screenwriters on what groundbreaking hit film? Groundbreaking, so that's not it's not a Bond film or it's not right. a... Right, I mean, I don't know that Clueless is groundbreaking either. Um, in a sense, uh, yeah, I guess what else? Pulp Fiction was written by Tarantino. That was earlier. What was yeah. in 95? What are groundbreaking movies from around then? Not Titanic or something like that? or no, That was a bit later. Yeah. Um, groundbreaking is the play on words. It's not one of these groundbreaking as in an earthquake film. <laughs> you mean like, like Armageddon or one of those? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Um, that was a, that was an asteroid, may, though. May, yeah, maybe. Um, peak. I can't imagine. I can't imagine he got an Oscar nomination for something no. like that. Hit, hit film too, as well as an Oscar nomination. Groundbreaking yeah. hit film. Shakespeare in Love was. Oh. No, that was Tom. That was Tom Stoppard. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, who did win an Oscar? I think. But he was part of a group. But this is a nomination, not a, not necessarily. Oh. A win. Groundbreaking yeah, hit film '95. Toy what about story, like, Toy Story? Yeah, I was thinking. What about Beauty and the Beast? Was a little bit earlier than that. Yeah, Toy could be. Could be Toy Story. Could be yeah. Toy Story. You want to try that? Yeah. It's around the right time. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Go for it. I think Jonathan and I are going to say Toy Story. Right. Like in Toy Story. Yeah, you circled around lots of things, but you landed on the uh, first fully computer animated film, yes. uh, groundbreaking in that sense. And uh, yeah, large number of Pixar uh, filmmakers who, who went on to work with that company and also Joss Whedon, who never worked with that company again. All right. Toy Story is correct. And the next question goes to Steve and Jonathan to steal from Bill. Many early approaches to international development were criticized for promoting neoliberalism and neo-imperialism. As a result, the contrasting capability approach was developed by economist Amartya Sen, and what moral philosopher, whose books include The Fragility of Goodness, Sex and Social Justice, and From Disgust to Humanity. Currently a professor at the University of Chicago, but previously taught at Harvard and Brown, one of her students at the latter was actor Tim Blake Nelson. Hmm. Can we see that up in the chat real quick? Um, moral philosopher. So I have a go-to female modern moral philosopher. Okay. Who's Judith Butler. Okay. I don't know if it's right. It probably isn't. But if we don't have anything better, we can go with that. Uh, let's see. Um, I would say I'm going to defer to you on that one right there, because after rereading the question, I've got nothing. So, did you say Judith Butler? Yeah, again, I'm only guessing this because she's my go-to modern moral philosopher, female moral philosopher. Well, that's more than I have, so I would say let's go Fine. for it. Okay, Judith Butler. All right, yeah, I have a master's degree in critical studies, so I've, I've read quite a bit of Judith Butler's work, but she's not the correct answer here. Bill? I should know this. I've studied for this on an Australian version of Mastermind, and her name is just disappeared out of my brain. Um, I know Amartya Sen 
pretty well. I've taught around some of the things, the capabilities approach and the development is freedom approaches from him. But I'm just, she's, her name's just gone. Um, it's Barbara. Barbara's sitting in my, my mind, but um, I'm not going to be able to pull it out and I'm just going to bore the listeners if I sit around thinking any longer. So no, I'm going to have to pass. All right. Her name is Martha Nussbaum. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I've heard Nussbaum, yeah. I've heard, yeah. Heard, the, heard the name. We'll never get it. Couldn't pull it. All right. Bill and Steve now to steal from Jonathan. Between 1956 and 1960, American Carol Heiss won all five world championships in her sport, as well as two Olympic medals. She then retired while still at her peak, which turned out to be a good thing because the crash of Sabina Flight 548 near Brussels tragically killed the entire U.S. delegation en route to the 1961 world championship in Prague. In what sport did this happen? The first thing that popped into my head, Stephen, was ice skating. Um, yeah, it's in Prague, and then let me see. Two Olympic medals, so 56 and 60. Okay. There would have been the Winter Olympics in 56 and again in 60 as well. Yeah. Retired, still at a peak. It's female, so individual world championships. I'm wondering if, yeah... I like skating because it seems like there'd be a large group going as a team here. So I, I don't yep. know. If and it's done as a national team. Yeah. Yep. Um, do we think speed skating then, or do we even need to be that specific? I suppose we would. I think it would have been figure skating. Because uh... it's five world championships rather than five world championships at a certain distance event or whatever. It's like she's probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Carol Heist, just as soon as I heard the name, I thought. I thought ice. We call it ice skating down in Australia. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like we like we call hockey is field hockey and your hockey is ice hockey. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the name Carol Heist doesn't jump out to me. So I think skating. All five world championships. So that wouldn't be speed skating because there would have been different distance events in there. Yeah. And it's her sport, so I just say it's figure skating. Okay. That encompasses a whole lot of things. But yeah. Yeah. I, the only other thing I can think of is uh, fencing, but again, I'm trying to think about individual and delegation. So I'm with you on skating, then figure skating. Okay. All right. So you guess we'll put in we'll put in skating, ice skating, figure skating. Okay, yeah, because if you'd said ice skating, like in America, ice skating just means like not roller skating. So <laughs> <laughs> that would have encompassed like figure skating, ice dancing, and uh, speed skating, and anything skating. So I would have asked for more specificity, but figure skating is sufficiently specific. So that is correct. And I'll ask Jonathan a quick bonus. So uh, one of the reasons that Carol Heist left figure skating was to attempt a career in Hollywood. She only starred in one film, which came out in 1961, in which she played Snow White opposite what comedy team? Well, movies is really not my category. Certainly not obscure 1961 madcap comedies. Um, What comedy team in 1961? Can I see the question? Yeah. No opposite one comedy team. Probably not. It's too early for only start in one film. I'm sure I'm sure this is gonna be a groaner when you tell me the answer. Um who's a comedy team from the early sixties, late fifties, early sixties? I don't think this is gonna come out well. I don't know. Nichols and May. 
<laughs> so yeah, the, the film kind of following the sort of adjective noun pattern of uh, the most famous film about Snow White, this one was called Snow White and the Three Stooges. Oh, <laughs> seriously? Oh, that was the first thing I thought of. Oh, oh my. Oh, oh come on. She probably thought about a return to figure skating after that one. <laughs> All right, now Bill and Jonathan to steal from Steve. I'll give a little bit of latitude in what I accept here because neither of you are American, but all right. Until it went off the air in 2019, the only scripted narrative show on US TV fully funded by a government agency was a crime drama that aired as part of CBS's Dream Team Saturday morning block of children's educational slash informational programming. That show centered on what organization generally considered America's oldest federal law enforcement agency? Oof. Wasn't Pinkerton's the predecessor of the FBI? Until it went off the air, the only scripted narrative show fully funded by government was a crime drama. Until it went off the air in 2019, Dream Team Saturday morning block of children's educational informational programming. That show centered on what organization that is generally considered America's oldest federal law enforcement agency? Pinkerton's led to the FBI... Federal, so it's not Texas Rangers, was a show from my childhood. We used to show yeah. on Australian TV. Or, well, what about the like, U.S. Marshals? They've been around for a long Marshals. time. Yeah, they, U.S. Marshals. They, they, they used to do things in, you know, in the Old West and stuff. Yep. Um, That's a shot. Um, federal law enforcement agencies. What, what are some other federal law enforcement agencies? Secret, Serv- think- Secret Service. No, they didn't come around until like the 20s, I don't think. So that's probably right. not it. Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms wouldn't be on the kids' show on a Saturday morning. Probably not. I mean, it would be a pretty good kids' show, but... With the DEA? DEA's new. They're, 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 new. they're new. Yeah, the kids can always watch Breaking Bad or something instead. Yeah, I mean, it's all over, Net- it's all over Netflix anyway. Um, I like your idea of U.S. Marshals. Yeah, I mean, I can't, th- I can't think of a show that would fit that category, but I, I don't think I'm going to get anything better. No, I'll go with I'll it. Go with- I'll go with yours, yeah. U.S. Marshal Service. All right, Steve? Uh, so that's the direction I was leaning, but I feel like that's a little more recent, and I think um, that I would go with Secret Service. I know their original intent was not to protect the president. I think fighting counterfeit currency was their original purview. So uh, I guess there's no benefit to going with the U.S. Marshals because if you guys get it, it doesn't fall to me anyways. So I will go with the Secret Service. Uh, Yeah, the Secret Service is pretty old, but even older than that, they traced their founding back to the 18th century, but as a separate agency, they were established in 1830. And they're officially the United States Postal Inspection Service. (laughs) Oh, I think I have heard that. What's the name of the show? What's the show? I think it was just called The Inspectors or something like that. Wow. I do uh, remember a side plot, and I I think it was the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where they have to deal with USPIS. Intergovernmental task force. Yeah, they they take their work seriously. (laughs) All right. Okay. Now, Steve and Jonathan to steal from Bill. This is kind of a long question. After breaking through with the role of Karen McDonald on the soap opera Coronation Street, a certain actress spent years piling up impressive credits on stage and screen, including playing Mona Lisa on the Sarah Jane Adventures, the spirit of the TARDIS in a Neil Gaiman scripted episode of Doctor Who, and DC Anne Oldman in Charlie Brooker's hilarious spoof of police procedurals A Touch of Cloth. However, it's only in the past five years or so that she's become a household name in the UK, starring on acclaimed series like Dr. Foster, Save Me, and Gentleman Jack. 
She was born with the surname Jones. What much more uncommon first name, which is more or less homophonous with the name given to the elephant foot yam in many parts of India, does she use professionally? Whoa. Whoa was right. I, I don't suppose we could luck into it being Cormoran. <laughs> <laughs> Um, born with the surname Jones. Uh, so. I have absolutely nothing. I'm trying to uh, think of the very few UK shows that I watch regularly, and it is a pretty slim list right now. Um, or uncommon first name. Uh, I'm trying to... Are, are we in the uh, the land of just wild guesses here? You are in the land of wild guesses because I can't even come up with one. <laughs> I, I would say let's just go with Felicity Great. so that we don't talk our way uh, Great. into oblivion here. Great, right, I love Fel- it. Felicity. All right, a decent guess. Bill? Oh, look, I have no, absolutely no idea what the <laughs> elephant foot yam is called in parts of India. The only... She's not Irish, so I'm sure Sharonan is not the person I'm thinking of, and that's a good old good Irish name. Um, I can't think of anyone else with a really weird name off the top of my head. Uh, no, I'm going to have to um, pass on that one. Well, we are in the super hard round, and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, you know, I found British TV is it's often a good source of, of very hard questions, except for some people who are really into it, for whom they become incredibly easy. So I discovered on Wikipedia actually that she actually was Christian with the name Sarah Ann because a priest apparently convinced her father that the name that he had planned to give her wasn't a real name, but it was a name that she, you know, went by in real life and used, uh, still uses professionally, and that name is Saran. Sure. Is, there, there are many different names the elephant yam has in India, including uh, Zimikamba, but um, in many parts it is called Saran. All right. All right. Okay, next question. Bill and Steve steal from Jonathan. During what became known as the October Crisis, a violent Quebec separatist group kidnapped and held hostage two high-ranking officials, one of whom they later killed. During the turmoil, reporter Tim Ralph interviewed Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau about how far he would be willing to go to restore order. Trudeau told Ralph, well, there are a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is, go on and bleed, but it is more important to keep law and order in this society than to be worried about weak-kneed people who don't like the looks of a soldier's helmet. To which Ralph replied, at any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Trudeau then responded with what phrase that has become iconic in Canadian culture? Let's go for Tim Hortons. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, no, this one's... So, how far are you willing to go? Let's see. We had a prime minister in Australia who, during the Vietnam protests, LBJ came to visit Australia during the Vietnam War, and there was big protests, of course, and uh, his slogan was, all the way with LBJ. Um, mm-hmm. which is a catchphrase in Australian politics. It might be an American too. But so, what did they say in Canada? I, I'm wondering if this is like a geographic thing, as in like all the way uh, to some faraway place in Canada. And when yeah, I think what, of... What do, you know, what do Canadians say from... Do they say from east to west, from Vancouver to Nova uh, Scotia? Uh, to PEI or... Um, I, I'm wondering it like all the way to none of it is, is something or all the way to the Yukon or all the way to the North pole is go on and plead, but it is more important to keep law and order. How far would you extend that? I'm trying to think of when, uh, 
Nunavut became, uh, I would guess, all the way to the Yukon is the best sort of guess answer I can come up with. I've got nothing else. That sounds that sounds fine. All right, so I guess we'll uh, stick with all the way to the Yukon. All right, yeah, I'll just uh, pass it over to Jonathan. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so what Canadians do, so the, the motto of Canada is from sea to sea, or originally was from sea to sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and then they recently changed it to be from sea to sea to sea, including the Arctic Ocean, but that has nothing to do with the answer to this question. Uh, what, Pierre, what Pierre Trudeau said in response to this famous question was, just watch me. Yeah, not really a geographic thing. It was more to what extent will you go, and he said, well, just watch me. Wow. And the final cycle, one more specialist question for each of you. Okay. And so we'll start with Steve's specialist question, which Bill and Jonathan will attempt to steal from him. And again, uh, well, this is going to be pretty hard for non-Americans, but oh well. All right. So if you watch a lot of New York City comedian roast battles, which I do, you'll become familiar with a blonde female comedian with the first name Rosebud, whose opponents frequently zero in on two well-known biographical details, or well-known in that community, biographical details about her. One is that when she was a teenager, her sister drowned after getting trapped by suction in a spa drain. This led to the passage of a federal pool and spa safety act. The other biographical detail is the reason that her family had enough influence to get federal law changed in response to their personal tragedy. She comes from a wealthy background, and her grandfather is massively politically connected, having been chief of staff to two Republican presidents within the past four decades, and also having served since as Secretary of Treasury and Secretary of State. And you need all that information in order to understand one of her opponent, Joel Wachowski's brilliant roast battle zinger. In Citizen Kane, Rosebud was some rich guy's childhood sled, in real life, Rosebud is some rich guy's child he wished died instead. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. So what is the surname shared by this comedian and her famous grandfather? Secretary of State. So that's the only thing I, I can probably I can probably only remember who might have been a Secretary of State in the last four decades. Republican. Chief of Staff to two Republican presidents, as well as... So there was a guy named Andrew Card, who was, I think, the chief of staff to both Reagan and George Bush the Younger. I don't know that he was Secretary of State or Secretary of the Treasury, so maybe that's not the best answer, but that was the first thing that came to my mind. So the two Republican presidents in the last 40 years could have been Nixon, Reagan, Ford. Well, not, Nixon, not Nixon. It's 2020, so it's got to be after the 80s. Oh, 2020. So back to 80. So, Ray, so it's from Reagan. Almost, Reagan, yeah. Bush the Elder, Bush the Younger, and Trump. Yeah. Hmm. No. Um, Who else was Secretary of State? Powell. Al Haig. Weinberger. Haig. Oh, Haig. No, he was earlier, though, wasn't he? Haig was never Secretary of Treasury, though, was he? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> uh, would you put him in charge of money? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> There's a lot of people I wouldn't put in charge of a lot of things who get to these <laughs> places, so you never know. Um, I do know that this guy was chief of staff, I'm pretty sure, to two presidents. There's probably okay. others, but that would be my guess. Your knowledge is way better than mine, so yeah. Okay, so we're going to say card. All right, yeah, as far as I can tell, card was only uh, chief of staff to one president. Oh. Uh, all right, Steve? Um, so the Sorry. name that jumps out right away to me... And the one I think I'm going to stick with is Baker. Mm. Um, I am pretty sure Baker was chief of staff twice. And 
I'm also, I thought he was Secretary of State. I don't know about the Treasury bit, but I, I could talk for an hour and not come up with a better answer than Baker. So I'll stick with that. All right, yeah. Oddly, there was a chief of staff under Reagan whose name was Howard Baker, but I don't think he's connected to the the chief of staff who served both Reagan and the first Bush, whose name was James Baker. Yeah, well done. So I owe that to uh, Tom Wilkinson's turn in the movie Recount, which uh, is an excellent movie and Wilkinson's one of my favorites. So I guess that is quite the route into that answer. Well done. Well done. You should have chosen that as your specialist category. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was going to be another Toy Story where you guys tease me for five minutes by making me think you're not going to come up with the answer and then drop Baker <laughs> at the last second. Yeah, I'll have to review the tape on that Toy Story one because I kind of blanked out and then you were you were way off of it. And then when my attention came back, you were right on it. And I was like, wait, how did that happen? Yeah, it was, it was funny because my mind right away said clueless. And then you guys talked me out of clueless. And then as soon as I got off that, I thought Toy Story. And then then it was just a matter of time. Yeah. Clueless was written entirely by Amy Heckerling, the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Girl, That's right. right. It actually wasn't nominated, although in retrospect, it's very easy to make the case that it should have been. All right. All right. So now Bill's final special question will go to Stephen Jonathan to seal from him. First appearing in the 1912 paper Variability and Mutability by its namesake Italian statistician and sociologist, the Gini coefficient is generally used as a measure of what? Oh, oh. sorry. This is for me and uh, Steve, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So the Gini coefficient, it's income inequality. Yeah, yes. That's what it, that's what it is. I'm with you. Lock it in. All right, very short question and a, a very brief uh, discussion leading to the correct answer. And oh, wow, that makes the scores a lot closer than it looks like. Uh, yeah, going into the final question of the game, it looks like uh, Steve 38.1, Bill 38.2, Jonathan 39.2. Whoa. Um, oh, my. So, All you have to do is play for the draw, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if, if, I wave, if I wave my arms on Skype, then maybe it'll distract you. <laughs> So if Bill and Steve get this next one, then for the first time, the game will be decided by the tiebreaker. If they don't, then uh, if they don't, then actually second place will be decided by the tiebreaker. So one way or another, this is the first time the tiebreaker will actually break a tie. Wow. <laughs> All right. So this question will go to Bill and Steve trying to steal from Jonathan. Sometimes called the father of neurosurgery, what pioneering doctor is the namesake of the um, medical library at Yale University that he founded, the namesake of several musical, uh, sorry, several medical instruments he developed, including a kind of forceps, also a namesake triad describing the response to increased intracranial pressure, and a namesake syndrome and disease, both caused by excessive levels of cortisol. Oh, and if that wasn't enough, in his spare time, he earned a Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Sir William Osler. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> sounds, <clears throat> sounds like every, every medical student should get this one, but I've never been a medical student. So, uh, All right. There's so many clues in there with different um, things in. Forceps. What are the forceps called? That's where I'm trying to home in on well, at the moment. Yeah, unless this guy's name is Dr. Tweezers, I don't think <laughs> the, the forceps is, is going to help me. I'm trying to think of the name for any medical equipment. Um, I'm thinking of something like Brax or Brant or... Uh, mm-hmm. Brant's forceps, <clears throat> Brax, Brax forceps. Excessive levels of cortisol. I don't even know what cortisol is. I know it's a stress hormone, so a namesake syndrome related to excessive levels of stress. 
Yeah, something syndrome, somebody syndrome. Hmm. Pulitzer Prize doesn't help. Um. Yeah. Um. So. The best I can come um, up with is Brax. Brax. So I know Ray's syndrome is mentioned a lot. So I don't know if like R E Y E S. Um, so that jumps to mind as um, type of syndrome, and that that would be my best guess. Ray's. Yeah. I've got nothing on this one, so um, um, I'll go with Stephen on that one. Okay, I think that's the best guess I'm going to get. Ray's. Okay, yeah. So there's often with these kind of eponyms, there's a, an apostrophe problem. So for instance, Down syndrome is, in fact, I think it's now often called Down syndrome, but it, it was a name for someone whose name was Down, not Downs. Similarly, Ray syndrome, I think, was in fact named for someone named Ray, not Ray's. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's not really connected to what this question is about anyway. Uh, <laughs> Jonathan? I believe this is Dr. Cushing. Yeah, do you know his first name? Henry? Close. Uh, yeah, he has, he has so many things named after him, people tend to remember the last name and not the first, but his first name was Harvey. Yeah. Harvey, hmm. that's right. Harvey Cushing, yeah. Um, I, I, wow. I, I, there were a lot of clues there. I, I really only knew it by one of them, which is the syndrome and disease with excessive cortisol. Took me a second hmm. to get there, but I got it. Wow. Yeah, I like to build in a bunch of clues, so there are multiple pathways, but yeah, the cortisol thing is probably the most famous thing. Although I did find it very interesting that he basically won a Pulitzer Prize in his spare time, you know, because he <laughs> had to... <laughs> so did John F. Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that finishes again. I believe I'll, I'll go back and recheck scores, but I believe Jonathan is the winner with 44.2 points, and then very close, just right behind uh, one question margin, basically. Bill at 38.2 and Steve at 38.1. And for the first time, the tiebreakers actually broke a tie. Congratulations to everyone. Very well-played game. Very yeah, well done. That was great. It was yeah, that was a lot too. of fun. It was close. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, very high number of steals and a high scoring game. And before we finish out, we'll just give each of you a chance to just basically say anything you want to say. As long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in. So just a final shape. It can be about the game. It can be about the world at large or any combination of those things. And we'll go uh, in reverse order of scoring. So we'll start with Steve. Hi, this is Future Yogesh. As I mentioned, this episode was my first time returning to the hosting chair after an illness, and I was a bit out of practice. As a result, I messed up the ordering of the final statements. As the third place finisher, Steve was supposed to have the last word, but I instead had him go first. Mea culpa, apologies to Steve. And if it's any consolation in future episodes, I did not make that mistake again. All right. Well, I guess what I'll say first is thank you to our host. That was a lot of fun. And a special hello to any of my students that did the extra credit assignment of listening to this podcast once it was posted. So I'll just say that as long as you email me the word banana, I will give you your extra credit. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm not sure if it'll be available in time for that to, to quite work out, but uh, you can always have them listen to other episodes of the podcast that have been posted. No problem. <laughs> All right. Okay. And then second place was Bill. Okay. Thanks, Yogesh and Recreational Thinking Podcast for that. That was a lot of fun. And thanks to Jonathan and Stephen for being great fun and great competitors. Mm -hmm. And uh, congratulations especially to Jonathan for pipping us at the end there. Um, <laughs> and thanks. Thanks. Great. It's been fun. And stay safe, everybody. All right. Jonathan? 
So I would also like to say thank you to my co-competitors and to Yogesh for hosting. And I just want to say to everybody, stay home, wash your hands, wear a mask, social distancing. You know, we were hit really hard here in New York and things are hopefully starting to turn around. But if we give up now, it's just going to make it worse later on. So stick with it. Do your best. Stay safe. Thank you. This has been episode 14 of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Routh. Thanks for listening.